Hello, friends. The day has come on Against Everyone with Connor Habib, <laughs> where I get to release a podcast episode and tell you that my novel, Hawk Mountain, is finally out in the U.S. Holy shit. So you can get it on audio, you can get it on Kindle, you can get it on, you know, I mean, the way people usually read books as a book. <laughs> I'm very excited for you to get it. All the ways of getting it will be in the show notes for this episode. This episode is me being interviewed by my good friend Una Malali. This is one of the best interviews I've ever had in my life, if not the best, because Una is an incredible interviewer. Um, you might remember Una from other episodes of the show, including episode 151 and before that. Um, she's a journalist, activist, artist, writer here in Ireland, and she is just incredible. So she asked me all sorts of questions about Hawk Mountain with no spoilers somehow. She has managed to give a real picture of the book and what's interesting about it without putting any spoilers in it at all. So we end up talking about Kate Bush and time and manipulation and animals and high school and horror and all of that. It's just a great episode. I gotta say, even though it's me being interviewed, Una did such a great job that she made it something really, I think, interesting, and I was really happy to talk with her. So now, um, <laughs> now that you can buy the book, please do buy it, and please tell people about it, and give it a great, you know, rating on Goodreads and all that kind of shit. Someone once just recently commented on, you know, me being a little too self-promotional lately. Well, listen, every episode of this podcast is free, and all my my stuff is free except for this book really so you've got to be self-promotional i've got to do it <laughs> because that's how uh people come to what i'm doing in a big way and also feel a connection with what i'm doing because i'm telling you about it it's not just everybody else in the world that said there are a lot of great people who have said a lot of great things about um <laughs> about the novel, um, including Clive Barker, Liz Nugent, Mark O'Connell, Caitlin Doty, um, and it's gotten starred reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Bookpage. It was one of the New York Times 12 books to read in July, and of course there's just going to be more stuff coming out. But I want to tell you about the tour real quickly. I know that some of you might know some of these tour dates, but I would love to see you out at any of these U.S. tour dates. And there are Irish tour dates uh, in you know coming up as well. So let me tell you the U.S. ones, and then I'll tell you the Irish ones, okay? So I'm going to be at the Print Bookstore in Portland, Maine on the 9th. I'll be at Porter Square Books uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts on the 10th, talking with horror superstar Paul Tremblay, who has a new book out himself, The Paul Bearers Club, um, in Philadelphia on the 11th at Headhouse Books, uh, in New York City at The Strand in the Rare Book Room with Will Meneker from Chapo Trap House. Uh, and for that one, you do need to get tickets, so make sure you go online and get tickets. There's no tickets at the door. you got to do it in advance. Uh, at Amherst Books in Amherst, Massachusetts on the 14th with the author Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, uh, Andrea Lawler. In San Diego on the 16th at The Book Catapult in Los Angeles on the 18th uh, at Book Soup with Sarah Gran. Uh, on the 19th in San Francisco at Fabulosa Books with the poet D.A. Powell. 
in Portland, Oregon on the 21st at Powell's Bookstore and in Seattle, Washington at third place Books in Ravenna with Jarrett Middleton. Okay, after that, I will be back in Dublin and I'll be doing a book launch at a bookstore, but that's just being still scheduled. I will be doing a huge rare event, rare Irish event with Caitlin Doty here in Dublin at the Fumbly Stables where we talk about horror and bodies on the 28th and you do have to buy tickets for that as well, the 28th of July at the Fumbly Stables with Caitlin Doty. And uh, I'll be also speaking at the Museum of Literature Ireland on August 5th with Sarah Maria Griffin, who's been on the show about the dark imagination. And there's all sorts of other things in the pipeline for London, for other points in Ireland, for Scotland, maybe even for Australia, but I will announce those as they come. Please do come to these events. If you want to hear them again, just go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib and look at the post for this episode. Everybody can access it, whether you're a Patreon Patreon patron or not. Um, if you're not a Patreon patron, be one. Um, patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. Oh, and get the book. And also, if all that was not enough for you, I will have some limited edition Hawk Mountain t-shirts and postcards at these events, which I'll be selling. So, I mean, th- there's not really any way right now to get them other than coming to an event because I don't have time to mail them out to anybody <laughs> because I'm just in the whirlwind of two tours and all that. But I'm very excited. Come out, hang out. Here's my conversation with Una Malali. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Against Everyone with Connor Habib. My name is Una Malali, and on this episode, I'm going to be talking to Connor about his new novel, Hawk Mountain. It is an astonishing, riveting, strange, intense, beautiful, kind of rollicking, weirdly, book as well that gets into your body in a way that I haven't experienced with the novel for a long time. I'm going to talk to Connor about his process in conceiving and creating this the themes that it evokes, the places that it lands in and the people it's concerned with. Um, I've been friends with Connor for uh, quite a long time now. And one of the thrills of talking to him about this book is when your friend writes a book, you have, I think, way more expectations and nerves around it than an author that you don't know personally. And there's nothing more thrilling than completely actually disconnecting from your human friendship with that author when you're reading something that becomes something else that is irrelevant to any um, connections or history that you have with this person. And instead, you're just immersed in the world of a, of a great author's writing. And that was just so gratifying for me as a reader um, and then thrilling to me to come back to Connor in real life and be like, you did it. You know, you, you've done something that's really special here and nobody has to slap your back or be superficial about it because it's very, very real. So, Connor, welcome to your own show. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I'd like to touch on something just kind of personal. First of all, like, how are you actually feeling about this being out in the world uh, in the US uh, now and in 
um, Europe later in July. It's been like every book is, I'm sure, a, a long personal um, and creatively uh, intense process, probably. And now you're getting into this other part of it that is very, very different, where it kind of explodes in other people's lives and, and, and goes away from you like a like a murmuration kind of. Yeah, it was really helpful to um, hear Kate Bush talk about her experience with running up that hill being on Stranger Things, because now that song has become a number one hit in the, in the UK, is top 10 in the US, and she rarely gives interviews, although I will get her on this show one day. Kate, if you're listening, um, I'd love to have you. But the, you know, it took 37 years for that song to, you know, come back. And she was just like, oh, it's so, it's so lovely. It's so wonderful. It's new audiences. And it was that moment when I realized, oh, like this actually will just have its own life and its own being, you know? And so that was the sort of first realization was, holy shit, this is actually just going to go out in the world and do what it wants. And then the second realization was, you know, I was trying to convince someone to come to one of my (laughs) readings, which you don't ever want to convince somebody um, in the U.S., but they just kind of didn't get why it would be important. And when my boyfriend helped me reframe, he's like, you know, you're never going to have kids, right? He's like, this is your kid. And so when I talked to the person about that, they got it like instantly. I was like, this is about as close as it's going to get. Like, come see the baby. And they're like, oh, yeah, because I didn't know exactly why it was so important. So then you have the baby that grows up and goes out in the world and 37 years later meets new people and all that kind of stuff. But then even also today, waking up next to my boyfriend, who's just an endless source of wisdom about this stuff, I guess, him and Kate Bush, um, he said, you know, wow, like people are going to know Todd and Jack now, who are the two main characters of the book. And that was so intense then too, like, holy shit, right. Other people get to meet them. And these, these thought forms, these weird, whatever the fuck they are coming together and meeting and forming this story. Um, and that was also really profound. So I'm just having, honestly, I didn't really have any feelings about it. They, I I was just sort of, you know, you know, when you have like a sort of low hum of like intense emotion, but you can't access it to articulate it. It's not available to you. And so it's been articulating pretty rapidly over the past week or so um, now that it is coming out today, the day we're speaking in the US. Mm. I think the thing with um, making a book is, you know, there's a creative process, which is very orientated around the self and there's a, an aloneness to that and the creation of characters or of narratives which is so um you know technical and creative and of the imagination and it lives within you and then you end up in a kind of um editorial process which is about the more technical aspects of writing i guess then all of a sudden you're in the publishing world with all the administration that goes around that and then you're in the promotional world and then you're actually in other people's worlds you know it kind of goes on these things and then you're in a then you're in almost the culture and then maybe history or whatever and and things come around in cycles and everything so it takes um it's you know it's like a river you know there are there are many kind of bends and and uh, bits of white water and, and and rocks and shorelines and things like that so let's talk about 
um, your writing uh, in relation to this novel and then the the book itself as well. I, I kind of just wanted to ask you, can you remember the first time um, or the first book that you read as a kid that had a, an impact on you that you felt like changed something within you? The first book? Yeah. Um, well, there are lots of different versions of answering that question. I can remember the first book I could read. I could remember the first book. I could remember trying to read something before I could read and what that experience was like. I remember the first book that made me want to write, <clears throat> which was at some point in my life as a kid, like pretty early, I started reading these big fantasy novels, like mass market paperback fantasy novels. But one that I read, which was, you know, obviously it's for adults, and I was, I think, eight years old, and I read this book called Artifact of, Artifact of Evil by Gary Gygax. Gary Gygax created Dungeons and & Dragons, and so this was a Dungeons & Dragons book set in a Dungeons & Dragons world campaign called Greyhawk Adventures. I didn't know anything about Greyhawk Adventures. I mean, I played Dungeons & Dragons with my brother as a kid. But um, this was not a series I was reading. For some reason, I was just like, cool, I'm going to read this in that very excitable way when you're a kid and you go to bookstores and you just look at the covers in the fantasy sci-fi section and you're like, that cover looks cool. This cover looked cool to me. So um, it started, as far as I can remember, it's obviously been a long time since I've read it, with a battle scene. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, we're right in the action right away. This is so strange. Like I'd never really experienced that before because you know, with kids books, there's always that lead in. There's always like so-and-so lived in a house on this lane and -and so-and-so had a cat that, you know, but in this book, we're right in the action, the violence, the intensity just to begin with. And so I started reading it. I was really electrified by the fact that the energy was right there, right from the start. So I started writing a novel. So I'm like eight years old and that was the trigger. It was like, I'd written little books here and there before, but I just started writing a fantasy novel that started in the middle of a battle scene. Right. I could quite imagine it, (laughs) but like it didn't, my mom had an Apple two C computer. So I just got on it and started writing. And then after that, I was just writing all the time. So I think it might sound like a weird answer that it was this fantasy novel, but it also, that tells me a lot about why I'm so committed to, you know, in fiction, supernatural themes, magical themes, um, you know, violence in fiction, all that kind of stuff all matters to me because that was the igniting presence of a book was (laughs) the artifact of evil. (laughs) Mm. That's great. I mean, I think it's something that people relate to an awful lot as well when they're kids, like young kids, you know, especially if you grow up in a a place. um, I mean, I grew up in a place where I couldn't find adventure in the in the context. So I think gravitating towards that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'd kind of relate to that. I read a lot of like boys adventure books when I was a kid, like Willard Price and all of the choose your own adventure books and then all of the Oral Stein kind of, you know, kid horror stuff as well. Um, yeah, and it's just that that the difference between the world of the imagination within books and the external world that you're living in. I think that's really when novels come to life for young children, the possibilities of them. Have there been any patterns um, in terms of 
stuff that you've read through each decade of your life that you can identify? Oh, definitely. And I actually did an episode of my show about this. It was called the hundredth episode, which I just recently reposted um, about doing an autobiography of ideas, like sort of tracing seven year periods in your life and seeing what kinds of ideas were coming up. For sure, there were patterns. Um, I think the most striking one is when I really started reading horror, especially Clive Barker, and listening to punk music around the same time. And you can just see the body like really coming forward in life. I mean, when you're a teenager, that your life is like so many questions about your body and desire and what's happening to you. It's, it's almost as if you, you can't even really see your hands or the rest of you until you're a teenager. And then suddenly you can't stop looking at it and you never can again or other people's bodies. And so I think, you know, horror novels really can seize people at that moment because they're often so bodily, you know? And so I think that, again, that stayed with me. It's not like the iterations don't, go away. And then, you know, at a certain point, there was a bridge too, because I was given a book of short stories by Donald Barthelme, um, who writes these absurdist stories. And because they're very flat, they're very funny. Um, Like one of his more famous stories is called The School. It's about um, this elementary school teacher who... (laughs) keeps buying animals for the students and they keep dying. And then like they adopt a, an, an orphan and the orphan dies and they get, yeah, I mean, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And so it has this kind of science fiction-y fantasy feel, but it was just felt more in the realm of literature because of the way it was played in this sort of deadpan way. And, Around then, too, someone gave me Play It As It... Well, yeah, maybe a little later. Yeah, someone gave me Play It As It Lays. This guy I hooked up with gave me Play It As It Lays by Joan Didion, which is a strikingly intense book that is, you know, I think has the best first page in literature. But it also just... There's lots of empty space in the book. And she says things like... She said things about it like, uh, you know, I want to write a book that people forgot as they read it, you know? And... It's very sparse, um, and every word is just like a knife, you know? And so I think entering this sort of... uh, So there's a horror quality to that, but I mean, there's definitely a horror quality to that book, even though it's just... It's about an actress whose life is kind of falling apart with the weight of ennui and boredom. But it... So you see these sort of transmuted forms of fantasy and horror into this other way of being in this sort of quote-unquote literary world. And then... Yeah. And so uh, I think it's kind of reiterations, but finding the themes and the gestures, finding their place in different modes and genres, you know? Mm. I'm really glad you've mentioned that kind of horror quality to Joan Didion's writing, because even in her journalism, a lot of people don't really pick up on that, that it gives you that unsettling, almost Hitchcockian kind of way in um, that that she's never really fra- framed in those ways. So I, I really love that you're, you're speaking about her in those terms. Yeah. And just to say that, like it, it is horror. And so then, you know, then as your personality changes, you start seeking things that maybe have awoken, uh, awoken, awakened in your personality 
Like, so I start reading Patricia Highsmith because, you know, and people consider her a thriller writer and she is for sure. But the thing that always got me about her writing was actually the melodrama of Mm. it. It's super melodramatic. And so melodrama entered my life because, you know, when you're, when you're gay or, you know, queer in any way, you're mimicking people around you for so long because you think, are they, are they all just aping each other? Like, is this all just, you know, you can see people in a kind of stark relief to yourself. And so of course that creates melodrama because you're feeling and sensing all these gestures that you're performing. And while other people are performing it, their experience of the performance is different. And so, you know, when you start waking up to that, you know, melodrama which with its big gestures that reveal something truer than just a sort of naturalistic, realistic gesture could do that, you know, it gives something, it really gives something to a gay person. You can see why, you know, lots of queer people are really into melodramatic things, you know, performative things. And fraud. And fraud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love a good gay fraudster. <clears throat> Okay, I'm going to ask the obvious question, Connor. What was the genesis of this novel? At what point did you realize the words on the page that you had typed or written down or made notes of were actually going to blossom into something much bigger? Yeah, so I was in grad school. So this is a long time ago, 15 years ago, I think, which is interesting because it's the same amount of time between uh, when the characters reunite in this book. But I wrote a short story um, called Hawk Mountain, or it might have been called something else. I I, I don't remember. When I was in my MFA program, it was 50 pages long, which is an unreasonable amount of pages to bring into a workshop. But like everybody fucking hated it. And it was, I wanted to write something melodramatic. So I thought, what's more melodramatic than the kind of violence you find in suspense thrillers. Like that actually is hugely melodramatic. So I'm going to write about that. And it was told from first person from Todd's point of view. And he was very like, had a very flowery voice. Um, He was very like, you know, Gore Vidal is a villain essentially, which is completely different than what he is now. (laughs) I mean, just could not be more different, but the events were kind of the same. And, um, and I kept thinking that that came out of uh, me also thinking about how, when you see someone out of place, when you're say if you, you go to Florida, you can see someone you fucking hate in Dublin and you're like, Oh, Hey, you know, like the, again, so it's a melodrama thing because you can see that animosity or enmity or even affinity can be just staged and then when you see the person somewhere else, you're removed from the stage so you can say hi to each other. It's like those old cartoons where the wolf do- the wolf and the sheep the the sheepdog are like chasing each other and then they like punch out their time cards and they have coffee and then they get back to it. Like the kinds of tense relationships we have are often frauds, um, performed, feigned. Certainly you can see it on social media, right? So I was thinking about what happened when two people would see each other out of place and how they might respond, even if they had had a really, really difficult past and who would keep performing and who would not. And 
wrote the story, brought it into workshop. People fucking hated it. I mean, they hated it. One person told me it was disgusting, disgusted him. That's what he said. My lecturer, I mean, quite unfairly, she's like, well, I don't read this sort of thing, so I don't really know what to say. And I was like, well, you're getting fucking paid a ton of money to read stories, like do better than this, you know? I mean, that whole MFA program was just, had a lot of problems, but um, a lot of good things too, but a lot of problems. But I kept thinking about them afterward. I was like, you know, fuck that. Like, I just kept thinking about them. The two characters, Todd and Jack, and Anthony, Todd's son. And they just stuck with me and stuck with me. And I kept thinking, should I make it a novel? Do I make it a play? Do I make it a screenplay? So then over a decade later, I tried to, I lived in Hollywood. So I tried to make it a screenplay, which is what you do when you live in Hollywood. And it didn't quite work, but what it did do for me, which was amazing was it just had all the, all the scenes all written out. I mean, you're doing screenwriting now. So, you know, it's like inside, outside, right? Exterior, interior, day or night. Like you get, you have to put the bare bones of every picture of every scene down on the page. And it's like the best way to prepare yourself to write a novel. Um, And so, but, but I couldn't, I I didn't get to do the stylistic stuff that I love to do with fiction writing because you don't get to fill any of it in. It has to be sparse because the director is the sort of primary caretaker of the creative movement and, and gesture and visualization of the project. And so I was like really unsatisfied with it. I had a, sorry, I'm going to just keep going on about this for one more second. I had a book that I wrote a proposal for. I'd worked on the proposal for like a fucking year and it was a slam dunk nonfiction book proposal about porn um, and culture. And it should have just fucking hit. And my agent was excited about it. Everybody that read it was like, this is the best proposal. And because it was like sort of Me Too era, like the height of it, I was getting these responses from editors that were like, I can't imagine publishing a book by a man about sexuality right now. Like this kind of stuff. And I was like, well, I'm not just any man <laughs> like writing about porn. This is a special skill set and knowledge set that I'm bringing that I think has something to offer. But when that failed, I was talking with my friend Scott, um, baby daddy from Scissor Sisters, who's also in a sort of phase shift of his artistic career. And he was just like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to write horror stories and I want to write this novel. And he's like, just fucking do it. So withdrawing into the real work and writing the novel, I wrote it in seven months and then I sold it, you know? And I was like, fuck, you know? So that's the whole sort of arc mm. and that's a great lesson as well you know um to, totally <laughs> because there's so many things that we're expected to write or told to write or that we feel sometimes the ideas that things that we're meant to go to maybe even aren't our own ultimately in some ways you know um so I'm really glad that you did that and it's really interesting that you're mentioning I didn't know about the 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 screen play background to it but you can really see structurally the clarity of the kind of um of that scene based uh type of framework underneath it and that and that's such a pleasure for for the reader as well one thing we're not going to do in this conversation is give too much away but i do want to frame the tone of the plot to people okay so it'll be interesting to see how you do this because i've been 
racking my brain over how to talk about it, what parts to read, all that kind of shit without giving away major plot twists and points. Yes, yes. Um, And the plot is so tight and brilliant. Um, But essentially, Hawk Mountain is about um, a guy called Todd and his son, Anthony. And um, it oscillates between his time as a teenager and his time as an adult 15 years later. And as a teenager, he was quite severely bullied by um, another guy called Jack. And 15 years later, Jack drops into his life. And this opens up a um, particular psychological space for him that is also invaded quite physically in terms of his proximity to this person um, who we all think that we get over uh, traumas and experiences as teenagers and it's revealed that that is not the case here um, and things start to happen. And that's basically the the the, the takeoff, I think, um, of this novel. I want to know what intentions you were setting out with um, when you started writing this or developing it further. Was there something you wanted to convey or was it story-led for you? Yeah, it's a great question because... Definitely when I wrote it the first time, there was something I wanted to convey. There were ideas. and But the more I learn about writing, the more I understand writing, the more the irritating truth becomes apparent to me, which is that you do have to let your art and characters be one step ahead of you. You do have to follow them and let them sort of lead you. It is, of course, part of you or something that's being translated through you. So it's not as simple as like, I'm just, you know, follow the story. Um, Cause there's, it's you, you know, you're writing it, but you have to be surprised, right? Like in the same way that you're surprised in a dream where like, it's your thoughts. So how the fuck could you be surprised or scared or whatever by it? And yet you really can be. And so you have to be like that when you write a novel as well. And so I moved away from the ideas, but the ideas are still there. Um, so like, like I said, the melodrama idea, the idea of school as a really just horrible and unnatural place. I mean, I just thinking about, I think at the time I wrote the, 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 the story, I was reading a lot about Indian residential schools, um, in the U S where people were taken away from their families and re, you know, quote unquote, reeducated into the Western world. Like, so, you know, in, uh, indigenous people were just torn away and, you know, reeducated. And I was thinking about, obviously that's very different and specific in that context, but how like that reeducation process happens to all children in the U S and how fucked up school is, how destructive it is. Um, whereas we hold education as this sort of like pinnacle, you know? So those were ideas that were definitely there, but I had to let those come in on their own or not come in. Um, by simply allowing the, yeah, like allowing the characters, whatever the fuck a character is. I mean, that's a whole different question, but the characters have these kinds of interactions and interplays and sort of creating these thought forms and then letting them live and following them. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's actually answering your question, but I think, uh, you know, it was ideas and then it wasn't. I think when you're, when you evolve enough as a writer, when you're as skillful a writer as you are, the technical 
um, aspects of plot and story come through and they ha- they have to be designed, you know, and the um, proficiency of prose comes through. But I think if you're if the channels are open enough, the ideas that you've been ruminating on your whole life will essentially kind of intertwine into the DNA of, of the work as well. So, yeah, all of those ideas are there within this this other kind of ex- expert mix of, of, of writing and story. Um, the setting, it's a place that I'm very unfamiliar with, but I can obviously identify <laughs> with certain things, you know, the sea, the beach, the um, the the way that the sea is in this um, book as, as a character that feels alien, but reaching and, and cold and all of those kinds of things. Tell me about the setting of, of this novel. Yeah, so the whole thing really takes place in almost all of it in New England. And it's sort of unspecified, you know, it's Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Um, but I made up the towns and all that. And it the, one of the things that's so striking about New England is you can have mountain, woods, and water, ponds, and ocean all next to each other. So, you know, you can stay in the house in the middle of the woods. And if you just walk for 30 minutes, you're standing in front of the ocean. You know, in Ireland, it's you can be standing on grazing land, you know, farmland, and then cross over the hill and then the ocean's there, which is striking in its own way. But to emerge from the woods and see the water. Um, and also to have such intensity of seasons, you know, the summer into the fall, you really the changes are so profound. Um, and so I think that all of that, there's a kind of, a darkness, a character building, uh, by character building, I mean our character, our personalities, building uh, aspect of living in New England. People become hardened in a good way, um, if you want. Like, you become really in touch with the seasons. Um, and so I think I think that that was all really important to me, all the sort of nature aspects in it. And there are lots of them. I mean, there are lots of different ones to talk about, but the... But the nature aspect of the setting, I wish actually I had something more thrilling to say about it, except to say that there's a kind of inescapable intensity to everything around you. And it could be that you wake up and you think that that's beautiful, or you could wake up and you could think that you're stuck, uh, surrounded by these sentinels that are trees and this limit, which is the ocean. And, you know, the, the, uh, challenge, you know, that will always keep you out, which is the mountain. So, yeah. Mm. I think as well, like maybe even more so than trees. I just, even though there's not an awful lot of description of leaves, for example, in this book, I felt that mulchy, uh, type of you know decay and growth uh, within it you know not to get too Keatsian about it but you know that 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 is very present and that's kind of um, relatable in, a, in an Irish sense even though we certainly don't have as many trees as, as New England but the weather as well I mean I remember um, messaging you quite early on when I was reading it saying you know it, t- it takes an awful lot of skill to make sunlight menacing and mm-hmm. um, and one of the highly skilled aspects of, of this um, 
novel is, I mean, we all learn about like pathetic fallacy when we're reading poems as kids or whatever, but how it shirks the obvious aspects of uh, the atmosphere of weather and actually creates this irony around it, you know, the bright sun and, and characters blocking out the sun and that feeling of glare. I was wondering how much were you thinking about weather, leaving the seasons aside when you were when you were writing? Yeah, that's a really good question with the weather um, and the light. And light, yeah. And the light especially. You know, light is very singular in New England um, as it is here in Ireland. It has a different quality. There's even a book of photographs by Joel Merowitz, which is a beautiful book of photographs called like, I think it's called Cape Light, which is just about light in, in the Cape in Massachusetts um, and how it falls differently uh, than anywhere else. But I think with weather, you know, weather, we always say it's linked to our moods. And I think one of the reasons why we do that is because our, because thoughts are finished. You have a thought and actually your thought is the sign that you, your thinking has stopped because the process of thinking ends in a thought. A thought has a punctuation, stops. Feelings are never finished. And they are in that way like weather. Yes, a rainstorm can come in and rain and pass, but you're still feeling the pressure when it opens up. Is that the end of the rain or is that actually somehow related to the entire cycle of the spot shower of the day? You know, weather feelings are like weather. And I think that that's where a lot of it's sort of coming in. Like feelings do not finish. They Mm. just don't. If you're looking for a finished feeling, you'll never find one. So the only way you can have something like closure is to either do something with your actions that seals a feeling off or try to think onto a feeling so you can sort of, uh, with some sort of narrative, seal it off. And then you create a little storm in a jar with a lid on it. But that's the best you can do. So I think that's part of why weather comes in so much. Mm. And interestingly, um, on top of feelings not finishing, you know, what this novel really teaches as well is that experiences don't necessarily finish. And the past certainly doesn't finish, right. even though it's it's apparently um, behind you. Although I was reading recently about a particular um, indigenous language in South America where the past is in front and oh, the, yeah. the future is behind because you can't see the future and, and the past is in front of you and that's how it's referred to and I thought that was that kind of popped into my head when I was reading yeah. this as well. Uh, that's great the directionality of it. Yeah. yeah so I want to talk about some of the ideas that I was thinking of um, when I was reading what the characters were experiencing and what they were doing. One of the things um, that came up for me is there's a couple um of of aspects where of of the characters lives where where their partners are absent in people's lives and these there's these kind of holes that relationships left um relationships that exist but but are completely unseen or that feeling of being alone and self-sufficient but being defined by the tension uh with an with an absent partner and I was wondering if you could just expand on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah uh, that's a great observation that I hadn't really thought of. Um, you know, abandonment. Uh, I think I even mentioned this in the book. There's a conversation where 
uh, Todd and one of the other characters are having questions about relationship. And yes, uh, great, great piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, everything in a relationship boils down to one of one or two things, which is, you know, someone feels enveloped or someone feels abandoned. And the abandoned person tends to cling on, or one person feels enveloped and the other person feels abandoned. Overwhelmed, which, I think, was the word you overwhelmed, used. Overwhelmed, yeah. yeah. So, the, so the abandoned person clings to the overwhelmed person who then wants to pull away more from the abandoned person who then clings tighter to the overwhelmed person. Or it can start with the overwhelmed person pulling away, right? And so, you know, I don't think relationships are that pat. Like, it's not that easy. But I do think that that's a good formulation because it helps you get out of a positive feedback cycle. Cause if you're the one feeling abandoned, take a step back. If you're the one feeling overwhelmed, take a step forward, you know? So, but I do think that we've all played one of those roles, you know, at one point and it brings its own kind of horror show, its own feeling to feel abandoned um, or to feel overwhelmed. And so I think, I think that's it. You know, there are characters who have purposely, left people um and there are characters who are seeking uh seeking to be with someone that they feel left by and (laughs) the sad truth about that i suppose is that even if you're totally with it even if you're the abandoned person or the overwhelmed person who knows to take the step back or take the step forward the other person might not be ready for that yet. And so they're still going to feel overwhelmed or abandoned. Um, and I think that that's a big part of it as well as like, well, shit, you can have your shit together, but guess what? (laughs) You know, like the world doesn't. So the question is not always about healing or connecting. Sometimes it's about how do you deal with, how do you deal with a world that refuses to heal or connect and stay in your own being? And, and just to say, in in this novel, there's a lot of play back and forth on who is healed um, and who is who is not, um, and who is you know the aggressor and who is the victim and all that. And maybe we'll talk about that more later. But it's like you can just see it doesn't matter if you have your shit together. And sometimes you think you have it together and you don't, or sometimes you really do, and something disrupts it. Something throws the pebble in the pond and the ripples just keep going out and out and out and out. I want to talk about that pebble because the other um, characteristic of how people are kind of moving through their lives um, in, in this novel, how the characters are trying to figure things out for themselves is this feeling of discombobulation that one's life or trajectory or setup is slipping away or there's an invention or an intervention or even an invention, but certainly an intervention that disrupts that to the point that or almost the puppetry of other people, how interventions can suddenly pull strings and make you act in ways that don't feel of yourself, especially, I think, after you've tried to um, have a semblance of control over your, your own life. And I was just wondering if you could maybe just talk a little bit about that kind of the people dropping into one's life and how, how that how those interventions can really disrupt things because you mentioned there when you're talking about relationships even if you have your shit together but it's so conditional on environment and and what happens next we i think we like to think that manipulation is somehow a terrible thing and yet the the fact of the matter is we all do it 
when you met your partners, anybody who's listening, like, didn't you do everything you could to get them to like you? And that doesn't mean always, of course, leaving your integrity necessarily, but don't we perform a version, you know? I mean, think of, you know, first dates are like the fucking worst thing in the world. You go on a first date and like, there's just a competition to show like who's got it together more, you know? <laughs> like, I've had a lot of this in my life, but I've made a lot of changes. And yeah, I used to like, you know, now it's really hard for me to trust people, but I'm trying to get over that and blah, blah, blah. Like we always put this self forward that's like in some sort of, you know, transit of progress, you know? Yeah, or even the, I mean, the act of seduction or the art of seduction is, totally. is, is you know, trying to make people believe that what you want is their idea. I mean, it's... Right, yes, and right, and there are lots of ways to seduce people, which includes, you know, uh, all sorts of things that don't look like seduction as well. So, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's like <laughs> manipulation, you know... How, how manipulative is it of everybody to say that manipulation is an ill when in fact we do it all the time um, in, in so many ways? Even when you are just talking this with someone and you nod your head to what they're saying, that's you trying to indicate to them that you hear what they're saying. But you could be fucking thinking about your grocery list. You know, it's not... Which, uh, Una's nodding right now, so I know what's <laughs> I know what's going on. I uh, refuse to be manipulated, but but the truth, you know, with manipulation, it's like actually the thing is to bring some sort of awareness to it and like try to encourage people's freedom. But that's a very advanced thing, you know. I mean that that takes tons of work to really encourage people in their own integrity and freedom, and to really trust others and trust yourself. I mean that's a life project for so many people. So I think while we can denote manipulation as something to be overcome and intervention as something to be overcome, um, until that happens, let's just admit that this is how we mostly interact with other people um, in one way or another. It's what the entire like art form of theater is based on, is that characters on stage with each other, one of them wants something. In fact, if you want to write a great play all you have to do is think well there's lots of things you have to do but one of the main things you have to do is have two people on stage and know that they both want something from each other and how are they going to communicate trying to get what they want from the other person so uh, i think it's uh, <laughs> i don't know that we es escape any of that puppetry that you're talking about you know um until we really really decide to do the spiritual development work not just personal but spiritual development work mm. It did make me think as well, like, how how do you know or how are you meant to know or are you even meant to know when an intervention occurs that this is something that you need to reject or block out and something that you actually need to go with? Is this the moment that changes your life, you know, for the better and sets you off on a course that you could have never imagined yourself on? Or is this something that is actually going to really disrupt things in a bad way? And I love the ambiguity that... that um, not just ambiguity, actually, because I was completely changing my mind all the all the way through about what was going on. And you mentioned there how Hawk Mountain really examines, you know, who is healed and who isn't. And um, obviously, there's an awful lot related to character development in that. Um, and also a lot, you know, very subtle uh play with the reader's mind and, and how they're perceiving things but really 
let's talk about the the subconscious impact of, of trauma and closing off experiences. Trauma as a word, as a as a as a discussion, has just become so gentrified in a weird way, and people use though that term for things that are not relevant to its um the drama of its use, I think. Um but but that thing of how can we conceive ourselves to be good or healed or have overcome something, but it has actually gone into our um self at a cellular level almost that it is still dictating um how we are years later and that's a different kind of puppetry echo almost you know that the thing that somebody did to you you find um that you are making gestures on that a decade two decades three decades later yeah totally you know you kind of alluded to a fact which is it's difficult to talk about which is that it seems that what constitutes trauma is like, I don't know, expanding. And, you know, there are a lot of ways to interpret that. Like, we could say that people are applying the term trauma to things that aren't actually traumatic. Like, it used to just apply really to soldiers, right? <laughs> or we could say, and some other groups of people, or we could say, no, actually the things that cause trauma are expanding or whatever. But I think what is true is that materialism is traumatic. It is the underlying trauma of most traumas. And it is a worldview that we keep uh, deepening our commitment to as time goes on. And so the more materialistic we are, and by materialistic, I don't mean consumerist. I mean, actually just thinking the world is just matter and motion and all that kind of stuff. The more we're going to amplify and accept violations of our commitment to materiality as traumatic. That's not to say that they're not experienced as trauma or that trauma is not real or anything like that. That's all obviously true. But when you see someone like the characters in this book dealing with trauma, a lot of times there's flashpoints in their lives that have to do with driving you deeper into the body, to material conditions, to situations that seem inescapable. I mean, high school is a great place to talk about where trauma originates because time is so fucked up in high school. You know that you're going to get out of it in a few years. But the challenges and the things that can become quite traumatic of bullying and whatever else, um, did you wear the right clothes? Are the girls going to make fun of the clothes you wore that day? Is someone going to kick up the back of your heel? Is a teacher going to embarrass you in front of the classroom? Are you going to get punched? Are you going to get in a fight? All that kind of stuff. It seems so immediate and nevertheless, you know, like, well, this is my junior year. This is, I have one year left of high school after this one, and then I'm out of here and I get to live the life that I want, but corralled into a place, um, that seems inescapable and that time doesn't really seem to function. It just drives deeper and deeper and deeper every instance of hurt and harm. 
And so a lot of times what we remember with trauma is actually the inescapable presence of materialism and material conditions. So I think for the characters in this book who are processing trauma or not, (laughs) um, yeah, like I said, these flashpoints of fuck, I'm in my body, I'm in the material world, I'm in this, you know, circumstance and material conditions. Those just keep coming up and coming up and anything that puts you back there, it feels so threatening. And you can't really extricate yourself from the trauma just by changing material conditions. It's why you can move away from somewhere and just keep getting the traumatic flashbacks. Um, or the trauma will change itself into something else somewhere else in your body or change itself into something that you enact or do to others. And I think that, you know, American high school, as you said earlier, is is such a an acute setting of that and such a unfortunately rich setting of that. And, you know, American high school has such an oversized uh, presence in popular culture globally and is viewed as what school is because of how stories are told across um, film and television in particular. But I do want to talk about it because it's also an object of fascination for people who don't grow grow up in places like America or Canada and see this context as, as quite unrelatable, really, far more tribal, far more um, aggressive uh, things like, you know, hall passes and hall monitors and these kind of things that don't really exist so much in certainly in, in, a, in a European context a lot of the time. Um, why did you make that decision to to root uh, the experiences of of the people who become these adults there? I think it was a very smart decision because when we talk about trauma, a lot of the trauma that's happening in that high school, people would see as kind of pedestrian or normal or ordinary or part of growing up. But what you do is you actually extrapolate the impact of of that. So let's talk about school then as that site. (laughs) Yeah, like I said before, I definitely had an idea that school itself is bad. Um, Taking a child away from its parents and family, not that parents and family are necessarily ideal either, but and putting them in a situation every single day for 12 years, you know, I mean, with the exception of weekends and summers and some holidays and just being like, here you go, get along, you know, for the sake of learning. And for the most case, what we mean by learning is, you know, kind of obedience to now technocracy, but, um, obedience to, you know, a workforce destiny that we've, you know, imposed upon you. Not all schools are like that, but most public schools have that element. And I find that really fucked. Um, and there's no escape from it. You know, you can get expelled, I suppose. And then, you know, whatever, but being expelled from school doesn't let you escape the obedience work structure, you know, in the U S and I mean, so I think one, just the trauma of school itself, the trauma of the inescapability of a certain trajectory in life that's not available to ch- children or teenagers, young adults. So I think that that's the first place to start with the trauma and the, the kind of hierarchies and, and school. 
the American high school thing, it is so interesting because it does really mark, right? Like it, it's such a strong image of what school is to people in America that they couldn't really imagine it being anything anywhere else. Or if, if they, if they look somewhere else, maybe they'll look to the UK where it's kind of similar mm. with the kinds of bullying and harassment and control structures that exist there. Um, so I think it's almost like, you know, I mean, bullying in, in schools has probably changed a bit too, since this time. But I think it's funny because people have asked me many times, like, you know, about difficult events in my life, things that have happened, being, you know, in an abusive relationship, having uh, physical and sexual abuse when I was a kid all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know, actually one of the most traumatic, horrible things that happened to me was high school. Cause there was no escape from that. There was no respite. I mean, there was nothing. Um, even the summer was shit. Am I going to bump into the wrong people walking down the street in my little town? You know, um, am I going to bump into the teacher who was horrible to me the day before the teacher that kicked my chair, that insulted me, that made fun of me, um, who's then going to light up and be nice on the street and seem like gaslighting, essentially. Like the enemy in Florida. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like the, there's no, there's no, right, exactly. Like they're going to take that up, but I'm not going to be able to, you know, because they're the one with all the power. So I, I think that was really interesting to me was that people didn't talk about broader cultural experiences as the place where trauma happens. But then I think, and this is one of the most important things to me about the book, and maybe we can go into this in different ways. Like I didn't, I purposely didn't put a lot of like, I'm awakening to my sexuality stuff in this book, even though it can be read, you know, in some ways as that like even though it can be read in some ways as oh there's a lot of contending with sexuality um and it was because i didn't want to literalize what people go through to show them what people go through to show readers like just to show readers anything, actually. I didn't want to literalize it. Like, usually when you want to know about, like, what's it like for, you know, a gay man to struggle with his sexual feelings? Or what's it like for a young, you know, girl in high school to deal with the social hierarchy she's dealing They just show that. And then you're supposed to relate to it. But what that usually does is you relate to it, and then it gets contained by the narrative that you've just watched because relating to characters is vital. But if that's all you've got going on, then in some ways it can be quite myopic as a, as an artist to do that. But in other ways, it's just depending on people to already be with you by the time they get to the book or the movie or whatever. What I wanted to do instead was to evoke the feeling of these life experiences in the reader by showing completely different experiences by showing experiences that I knew 99% of the readers are not going to have in their lives. Hopefully a hundred percent of the readers will not have in their lives. Obviously some of them will be there. Some of the, the bullying or the high school hierarchy or stuff, but there's some stuff in this book that I hope nobody's going through. 
but the witnessing of it should evoke the feeling of what it's like to be in these real life situations for the reader rather than literally showing it. I want a feeling showing of it. And that I think high school for me was a pretty rich place to set some of that now. And you know, most of the book isn't set in those high school years, but there's tons of it that's set in high school because Todd's also teaching in a high school as well. Well, I think the way you explore that, though, just feels much realer or more authentic because as a teenager experiencing the containment aspect of school or the hierarchies or the power dynamics or the violence or bullying, like you don't have a social framework to relate this experience to. You are in the fish tank and there are the fish, big and small, and you're not necessarily um, intellectualizing it or making social science out of your experience. All this weirdness is just occurring and you're having to deal with it in very present tense, you know, because even though, as you say, you know, high school or school has a particular relationship with time, a lot of that time is about present, you know, that it's today, what's going to happen, the next class right now in this moment, you know. Yeah, there are bells and period. It's called periods, periods of time, cycles. Um, you know, you have to be in class at a certain time. You're supposed to be located in space relating to time in a certain way. And it's quite strict. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the main grievance that I think that people will have been on the other end of in school is around punctuality, you know. Totally. You're right. <laughs> it's right. just like one of, I mean... Maybe that's why I'm so punctual, because I fetishize punctuality. But like, I think that obviously comes from from schooling. Well, yeah. And even like the there's a bit in there about, you know, your eyes forward. If your eyes are down or at your phone or whatever, when you're in class, eyes forward. Otherwise, they're the wrong way. Mm. You can only look forward towards the center of attention, which is the teacher. And if you don't, the teacher will notice. And they'll notice that your eyes are not looking in the right direction. Mm. I mean, that is it, the positioning of the head and the body. Like, it's not just enough to get you in that room at, you know, whatever, 7.35 in the morning, which is also absurd that school starts so early. And that's based around work cycling um, history and labor history. But, like, get your kids there. Get them in the chair that early in the morning eyes forward or they've done something wrong yeah and you can you know it's pretty obvious in contemporary corporate culture like particularly contemporary tech corporate culture the drive to redesign offices so that they look increasingly like classrooms and not actually places where adults have privacy to do their own thinking and work you know co-working spaces yeah. yeah and just the average office you know now feels more you know the you know the lack of privacy and the open plan aspect of it feels much more like a classroom than offices did in you know the the 90s or something and it's that constant um i think those are things that like companies do to subconsciously trigger um obedience traumas so that people actually engage in a particular way um by pretending there's no hierarchy but actually evoking that memory of of very strict hierarchies um let's talk about nature because it is so uh present uh in in hawk mountain particularly around animals um we've talked about weather you know you've mentioned the topography of of the setting um but what about the impact of animals on your own life that you brought into this book as signs as um 
visitors from from different spiritual realms, be they foreboding, hopeful, foretelling. You know, there's one moment um, at a, a very key moment where there just so happens to be this lost dog, you know, a domestic animal. And the, the, the line that you write is, uh, you know, the dog is kind of scrabbling through the place and you write, life now is this starving path through the grass, you know, and it's interesting how the domestic animal is struggling so hugely in this wild setting, whereas the wild animals are experiencing something completely different. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, um, <laughs> what an interesting line for you to bring up out of it all. I mean, for me, it's interesting that you chose that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a chapter where Todd as a child is menaced by a dog and one of the realizations he has is through that for complicated reasons is that no one who's supposed to save him will save him right and i imagine while a dog itself would not think that cuz the thought process of animals is very strange but like the um but the <laughs> but the feeling life of animals i mean there must be some sort of response complex response life that's like oh shit like the people that were meant to take care of me aren't around anymore right um again i don't think animals have those kinds of realizations exactly like i don't think the dog's like well buck up i'm going to have to make it on my own and lick old popsicle sticks and that kind of stuff but it there's there is a sense you know a very felt sense and so i think it's just sort of echoing through the world the kinds of idea that oh i'm not saved how a dog feels when it's not saved or cared for is is different but we can see that these principles echo through each layer of being you know, and that's something that I wanted to write about. The rest of the animals, I mean, they can be quite threatening, even if they're beautiful. Like there's there's a whole moment in the book that really just keeps going into the action of Todd and Jack, what's happening there, and then pulling out and then showing the animal world. And um, part of that is from an amazing book called Hopscotch um, by Julio Cortazar. Oh God, it's just a great novel. You read a chapter and then you jump to the back and you read a supplementary chapter. But um, in some ways it's like, this is going to sound so like awful, but it's like a literary PowerPoint presentation where the, the, the images in the back are evocative. They're not necessarily directly related. So there's one where, uh, I mean, and maybe this is going to make it sound really unappealing, but there's one where a woman is um, in the front. She's being or about to be sexually assaulted, but then you jump to the back and there's a whole thing about caterpillar, uh, ants tearing apart a caterpillar. And so what happens in that moment is if he had tried to write it directly, of course it could have been effective, but would you have felt a certain kind of feeling? Like actually you feel such disgust and frustration that this is the way things are going when you jump to the chapter in the back and it evokes something that's, I think, way more powerful than what he would have been as great of a writer as he was that he would have been able to achieve and, you know, sort of writing it out directly. And it's because animals, every animal represents on its own an aspect of who we are. Bats mean something different to us than herons, than foxes, than mice, than elephants, than tigers. And we all have... Uh, 
a collective responses to these beings, but we also have individualized relationships and personalized bestiaries. So when we see an animal, it evokes something in us. And when we say, see, um, like, I don't know, we could see uh, like a, a hawk or we could see a magpie in Dublin and be like, oh, how are you doing? But then when we see it trying to eat the baby swan, we want to get in the way um, because their behaviors in relation to other animals also evoke something in us. You know, in some ways, the entire world of animals is our entire emotional world mapped out and just running around on its own accord. Hmm. How much time do you spend in natural settings or in, in nature kind of taking notes? I mean, there's some descriptions of, of, of light and dusk that feel to me, they feel simple, but actually, no, they feel very clear and they feel to me like, someone who spent an awful lot of time, you know, looking at the sky or whatever, you know, that description, you know, even something so simple, but so it, it means an awful lot at the time. This line, the day is letting go of the sun, you know, these kind of like uh, grips loosening and fastening within um, within the, the natural world. Do you spend a lot of time like looking at trees, writing things down about them or... Yeah, it's funny, like, I want to say yes, but like, I don't think I really do that much since I've moved to Dublin, especially. And before Dublin, I lived in LA. And before LA, I lived in San Francisco. San Francisco is the most barren place when it comes to nature. Now, I know people argue that, of course, but LA has tons of trees, tons of lawns. And while we don't think of lawns as natural I mean, the insects that are there do, you know, in San Francisco, there were no insects, which was completely bizarre to me, like, at least in the area that I lived in, mm. right? I guess LA also has the invisible presence of nature. You know, it's one of the few two metropolises that has big cats, right? Totally. Yeah. Yes, right. Exactly. We have mountain lions there, black widows. I mean, just the fact that there are animals that can kill you in LA evokes the sense of what nature really is, which is this sort of wildness that's always impinging. Whereas, you know, I think, but just to say, like, in all of these cities, I, not enough, not enough time. Um, you know, you could go to the beach in LA and that is a form of nature for sure. Um, and you could go to the beach in San Francisco or Dublin for that matter. And I think a lot of it actually is just that I have a really vivid memory of childhood. Um, and that I remember, I mean, I would turn rocks over and just look at bugs for hours, hours. Um, and I think that that had a lot to do with it, you know, for me. But also, like, living in New England for a really long time, you are in nature. I lived in a house that, you know, the woods in the back faded into conservation land. So, I mean, that definitely played into it a lot as well. I wish I did more. Honestly, I really did uh, do. It gets a little overwhelming for me, almost. Not in a bad way, but... I can't, if I go, even if I sit in a park, I can't really do anything mm. except look at the park, you know, look at the grass and the trees and the light and whatever. It becomes very hard for me to read a book or to do anything. And, uh, but I should do it. I should do it more. The pace and the rhythm, um, of, of this novel is, is so expertly judged, particularly because one of the characters has to keep repeating, um, similar tasks, 
um, um, throughout it and, and that return to that instead of what can often happen where something dramatic happens and then it and then it goes and then people are dealing with the the fallout whereas this is very different the person is engaged in the task an awful lot and when you read it you'll know what I'm talking about but in terms of that pacing uh within the writing was there any particular music you were listening to or pacing in in your own body movement or gestures that you were engaging in while you were creating this or writing it yeah it's funny i just submitted a playlist for this website called large-hearted boy where authors make playlists for uh their novels and it's like a hugely celebrated site i was honored to be asked to be but i had i was like what songs you know are part of it and you can look at the playlist there's some songs that you probably won't know most of them um for people listening because some of them are quite obscure there's a song by The Gloaming called The Weight of Things, which is definitely a part of it. Mm. But when I came to the process songs, like, in other words, what are the songs that don't necessarily relate to the content, but the writing of this book? There were two. One is called Stick Around by David Ramirez, and the other is called uh, Dizzy, and it's by Throwing Muses. I didn't listen to those to make me think about anything. What I did was I put them on, and I literally let them play for hours on end, repeat, 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 repeat. No other songs or no other song because it would just be one at a time. And that would create a sort of obsession that I had to break free from. And as soon as I broke free from it, the writing came out. So I don't, I think maybe you're onto something with this, like when you're talking about this rhythmic activity that happens in the book, like I can't remember if it was during those chapters that I was listening to the song, but maybe, maybe it was, but I had to evoke a kind of obsessive rhythm in myself at certain points writing too. And that's one of my tricks that I use when I write though, is I'll do that. So it's not just applying to this book. Um, but yeah, I mean, music, music definitely relates to the book. Although I don't, I don't think there's any there's music, no in, music the book. in it. No, no. <laughs> oh, I think maybe a, there's what maybe there's what no I'm not sure there there there's is a poem that yeah. plays a sort of intense part in the book which is also in the in the front um, a poem called Prophecy by Paul Perry who's a great Irish poet um, and it actually appears woven into the book a bit as well but yeah don't oh there's Brahms there's some Brahms yes. I think in the book yeah, yeah. there yeah. is yeah. Yeah, and I love listening to classical music when I when I read, when I write, anything. It's always the thing that I can turn to when I'm like, how do I get back into a mood that's not the frantic forwardness? I mean, how funny! Like people blame capitalism for all sorts of things, and they they you know blame the aristocracy and the monarchy and all that kind of stuff. And yet there is all this classical music, even fucking Stalin, like these Russian composers that are making music for these structures or just to survive in them that can actually pull us out of the one that's facing us down now and put us into this much more grounded artistic living space. Yeah. Or Wagner. I mean, there's huge debate about, you know, I mean, <laughs> right, like, right. yeah, totally heavy shit. I don't think I could listen to Wagner while I'm writing though. I no. feel like, no, it just make me want to like jump in the canal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the, I don't even know how to describe the next two questions that I want to ask, which are probably going to be like, um, which are probably going to be the final questions, but 
you mentioned an, an Ouroboros at one point um, and, and say, you know, becoming itself to destroy itself. Um, and there's certain parts of Hawk Mountain that become pulled into a darkness that is being confusedly conjured by somebody else who I don't think really knows what he's doing or um, is taking the first step but not the second not not kind of understanding where he's at and I think that for me this is where the success of the novel is um, how one's relationship with the character characters change and what you start out thinking how they are and why they are and what they're going to do and how that really really changes and it changes one owns feelings about one's own actions as well um but that thing you know the becoming itself to destroy itself can you talk about that a little bit I'd like to to hear um what you meant about that or how you feel about that is it pertinent to a particular character or is it a bigger idea for you well, it's definitely a bigger idea, but I mean, in terms of the book, so, so let me hold off on that for one second, but in terms of the book, you know, by the time a lot of characters know who they are, it's too late. Yeah. The uttering of it is the undoing of it in, in, in a lot of ways, because I mean, that's what happens with repression, you know, and repression plays a, a big part in this book as well to unrepress is to lose your identity as someone who was repressing something. And so as soon as you do that, you've destroyed who you are. And so, so the very thing that you're seeking destroys your, your history. So I, that's part of it for sure. I mean, a, a, a chick destroys an egg, you know, it destroys its incubator. So I think that that's something, you know, these, moments in our lives that where we really become who we are um even if they don't go disastrously wrong as they do in this book they um they can really do a number on us you know i mean even just being someone who has a book coming out or that's out today versus being someone who's always wanted to have a book coming out that's fucked me up you know like that's an intense process so i i think there's that i also think that how do i say this without it being too you know overwrought you know everything we do everything we create is, you know, and even everything we see do as we walk through the world is an act of death and destruction. <laughs> and that might sound horrible. And I, and there's certainly a way in which it's horrible, but beyond just not being one of the Janes who sweeps in front of their feet with a broom so they don't step on any bugs and all that kind of stuff beyond just that, like when we see light when we sense something that's the world dying into us 
it's it's the the moment something comes into vision is the moment we know it's died because it's dying into us to become uh, a thought a concept a sense a perception an idea so if you look around you right now in the room everything you look at is is as you look you're destroying everything <laughs> because it in a way it's I know this is maybe a too imprecise a way to say it, and maybe nobody understands what I'm saying, but what you see is the moment of dying. You don't see things. You see something sacrificing itself so that you can have a sense or an idea or a feeling. So that Ouroboros, that snake swallowing itself... That's a picture of the world in a lot of ways. Things die so that we can become, or, you know, to put it another way, you know, in the song, Someone Has to Die by the Maritime, a band I really love, the guy who used to be in the Promise Ring, all I know is someone has to die um, to make room for you and I. Our love goes crazy all the time. <laughs> and it, that's a very funny song because it sounds like the Friends theme song as well, like the opening chords. Um our love goes crazy all the time. <laughs> you know, the only thing that makes things possible is the, in, in a physical sense is deterioration, but I think it goes much, much deeper than that. And so just to understand everything is always sacrificing itself for us at every moment, just so we can be here. Mm. Mm. Um, you quote uh, Meister Eckhart, only the hand that arises can write the true thing. What does that line mean to you? Yeah, so Meister, Meister Eckhart, the mystic, um, was obsessed with what God was not, so he could tell us what God was. So he, he wrote, only the hand that erases can write the true thing. And that's in the book, um, one of Todd's thoughts. Um uh, I mean, I don't know if I agree with my direct heart there. You know, it's a, it's one of the characters thoughts. I mean, I, I, it's an intriguing thought. Um, but it is certainly true that we've got to remove a lot of clutter to get to the truth. And just when we think we've gotten that clarity, maybe we should erase the clarity too. Sometimes I think that God is you know, an empty room with the walls and ceiling gone, you know, something is there, but nevertheless, you know, nothing is there. So I, I do think that the process of removal of undoing of erasing, it can lead us down. It can lead us down a profound path, but it might not be the one you want to take. Maybe you want to just keep trying to add, you know, and after all, see, this is why my share card's wrong. It's like, if you try to erase something, you're still adding to it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think a part, there's like a triple subtext for me in that line appearing in this book, because um, apart from the things that you've talked about, there is such clarity in, in the writing. And there is no, there is like, this is all killer. You know, there is no, um, there is nothing out of place and there is nothing, uh, that ebbs unnecessarily. And so I feel that, you know, you mentioned um, 
at the at the top of our conversation, you know, the white space on Joan Didion's pages, you know, that can exist in so many different forms, even if it doesn't look like white space on the fa- on the page. And I think that that's kind of what you've actually achieved, you know, I, I, and I, I like that line in a different way because, you know, apart from the, the, the deeply spiritual connotations and meaning that it holds, it's also about minimalism. It's about how things are revealed, not through their, uh, their obvious content, but through the outline and through what is actually up against them, the trees, the 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 head blocking out the the sunlight you know so then the sun is even more significant right because it's not it's it's been blocked by someone and so many of those outlines and contours um populate this book to the point of how things are revealed and peeled um so so well that um you know something physiological happened to me while I was I was I was reading this um in a, in a way that felt very related to my nervous system. Um, and I don't know whether it's the, the, the state of unrest, um, or dis-ease or unease that you find yourself in reading this, but also wanting that, you know, wanting, wanting the more of that. So there's an erasure going on, um, and an entry that is going on that I feel that maybe you meant this intentionally I don't know but that that line really actually becomes something different in your in your own writing uh and and for that I'm very very grateful before we finish is there anything about this book that you think nobody's going to ask you that you would like to talk about (laughs) Uh, that's a first of all thank you for saying all that and if only Todd had the same interpretation of that line as you did, maybe it would have been healing for M um, or Jack. Um, uh, it's not that I, I honestly, I don't know what people are going to ask me. I actually have no concept of it. Some people said that they found the book funny. They liked the book, but they found lots of humor in it. And I thought, what the fuck are you seeing? You know, I mean, that's, that's the, you know, the sort of grace about something like this. I anticipate a lot of, you know, sort of identity questions and queerness questions and stuff like that. And it's not that I don't think those, those are valuable, but you know, it's like we've talked about before when you ran a reading with Tori Peters and Mona Tawi, how Tori, was talking about her own writing and I thought, wow, no one wants any marginalized person. Uh, she, she revealed this to me. She, so I'm not saying this against her. She revealed it to me. I was thinking nobody wants any marginalized person to write fiction. Like none of us get to write fiction. It always has to be didactic. It has to be about identity curated for people who are not of that identity or who are to sort of learn something or reaffirm something about themselves. And I thought that that was terrible. So, you know, I think, I think some of the things that would be fucking great where it would be if people, if people didn't ask me about that and instead tried to ask questions about, or didn't ask me process questions per se, but instead asked me questions that were like, what's the character? How does this work that you sat down and words came together, formed out of letters, formed out of gestures out of like, how the fuck does this happen? How does that work? Because I like thinking about those things. Now, I, I'm saying this and now, like, if everybody at every reading I do in the <laughs> has asked me about it, I'm going to be like, fuck, I shouldn't have said that. But 
but you know that that kind of stuff that's bizarre to me like what what are what are Todd and Jack and Anthony and you know Livia and Elaine doing now you know those questions would be interesting uh, meaning in me what are they doing now are they still at work um is there something still happening with them in my head in my emotional space do you have a little hereditary dollhouse in your yeah. brain with them <laughs> yeah, all? exactly <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so it's it's all of that and i think i those kinds of questions are very interesting to me i i wonder you know I was talking to our friend Mona Altawi about it. And obviously Mona's a very fierce feminist. And I was like, my book completely fails the Bechdel test, right? Like this uh, idea that, you know, are there women in a book talking about anything that's not men? And the answer is no in this case. And she was like, are you trying to get me to hate it? And then I talked to her more about it. She's like, oh, no, it's great. Don't worry about it. And obviously Alison Bechdel also didn't mean that to be the judge of every of every work of art. It's just been sort of misappropriated. Um, also, you are a man. Right. <laughs> right, right. So I would have gotten the other thing where it was like, uh, like now you're writing too many, you know, characters that aren't part of your identity or whatever. But I think, I think for me, like, that's an interesting question of the absence. Like, who else is in this book that's not in this book? What were they doing? So there's some characters that are extremely peripheral, or maybe very present, but that just don't show up. Mm. And I'd like to think about what they were doing. You know, like, what what is so-and-so doing? You know, um, what kinds of conversations would these two main sort of main slash supporting female characters have? You know, is that in your imagination in relation to this book or not? I actually don't know the answers to any of these questions, by the way. So they're interesting to me. And those would be challenging and exciting. And I just have one last thing to say, which is, um, you know, when Rainer Werner Fassbender made the excellent, one of the greatest movies ever called The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. And it's about basically three women who treat each other like shit. And someone said, wow, you're, you're such a misogynist. You know, you make these women just interact with each other so horribly. And he said, how do you know they're women? <laughs> and he didn't mean that as some sort of glib you know, anti-trans comment, like what he meant was like, this is a movie, like, why are you literalizing the characters? This is a presentation and things could be taken in a completely different way. How, do, how dare you not yeah. open yourself to that? And so they're actually all France. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like how, how dare you, George Orwell, you know, poorly depict pigs and horses, you know, <laughs> but I think, but so I do think like, those kinds of questions would also be really interesting for me that I wish people would share with me what strikes them beyond what is just literally on the page. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like the themes and issues cul-de-sac of talking about literature. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, this is not a cul-de-sac. This is a this is something very wild and, and expansive and I know I've said to you before, Connor, that I'm like so glad that you wrote a great book because <laughs> I don't I don't bullshit and it would be really awkward, you know. So now I'm just like, oh, yes. And, and I'm just so I'm so impressed, which is such a strange feeling, you know, to have because it sounds like weirdly 
um, patronizing or something, but it's absolutely separate to that. It's like, I'm just so impressed and, and thrilled with this. And, you know, it is um, the first novel I've read in, in, in a long time that has met, it's created this weird fiber optic you know relationship between like my body and the book even when I look at it I I feel it and I was reading it yesterday um uh yesterday afternoon in in a pub in Dublin and I could just I don't know it felt like the grain of the wood was coming into it and and the light from the stained glass was coming into it and I was going into it and it was going everywhere in the room and the conversations around me I was relating them to the, the the characters and all this kind of stuff so you know, whoever picks this up is is going to have a real thrill and it's going to stay with them for, for a long time, if not forever. And I just wish you the best of luck on this journey that you're going to go on and enjoy the ride. And I hope, and because uh, I, I know the readers will, so I hope you do. So congratulations. Oh, that's a great compliment, Una. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to Against Everything with Connor Habib. Fuck!